<clears throat> All right, so welcome to Quarantine with Lou. I'm your host and strategic partner in cost reduction, reducing your business expenses forever, Louis Fernandez. And today we're joined by Grant Anderson, the guy who specializes in extreme life support, really extreme life support. But before we get into that, if you're a fan of inspiring people and informative content, then you've come to the right place because that's all we do. So go ahead and send the like button to the moon to start the process for creating a base there. And with that, Grant, how are you doing, my friend? Not too bad. And if you're creating a base on the moon, we'll do the life support system for you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I like to talk about, you know, one of the things I've, I've mentioned a few times is that behind every business, there's uh, a lot of heart and passion. And, and there's a story of um, how someone arrived in that at that space. You know, it, it's it's not like you just uh, wake up in the morning and then you all of a sudden have a business. I mean, there's there's um, there's a mountain that was climbed um, and that story, you know, it's always inspiring. It doesn't matter who I talk to. Uh, and something that I love to hear from people of how they got to, you know, how did you get into this business? What inspired you to get to get going? And um, and then we talk a little bit about what it is exactly you do. Well, uh, to take your analogy a little further, there's a mountain to be climbed, but I think you have to swim an ocean to get to the mountain to climb. <laughs> and 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 part, you know, and part of life and growing up is swimming that ocean. I. I, I have a very unique background, and I don't say that with any sort of false pride or anything. My father was a diplomat, um, but mind you, from a small town in Iowa. Uh, so I actually grew up 13 of my first 18 years in Europe um, and then visiting home for the summer in rural Iowa. So I was the only kid that got out of school in June in Vienna, Austria, and three days later was in a bean field in Iowa, you know, chopping or pulling out sunflower seeds and chopping stinkweed and, milk and milkweed and stuff. So what town in Iowa was that? Just 1,200 people and a dog. It's called Gowrie, Iowa. It's, okay. Uh, I used to live in Ottumwa. Okay. It's near Fort Dodge, Iowa, if you know where right. Fort Dodge is. Yeah. The big city of 50,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> I also uh, spent seven years in Europe as a kid, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, um, but it's very, very pertinent for what we're talking about here, because mm -hmm. I think one of the things moving as much as I did eight times in 18 years, I, mm -hmm. I uh, my last three years of high school were in three different countries, mm -hmm. a little in three different high schools, is it made me to somewhat a people person. Um, and it also made me very respectful of diversity in other cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, because you, you, even if you were in, say, you could say, well, Western Europe, what's the, how it's different in the United States. But reminder, I grew up in Western Europe 22 years after, after, uh, after, in fact, when I first moved to Europe, it was 18 years after the end of World War II. You know, wow. I'm, I'm that old. So, so it was definitely <laughs> a different environment than it is now. Um, but it's not only that, but the, I was going to international schools very often or schools with a highly international content. So I think my school in Vienna had 37 different nationalities. Wow. Uh, and I think the school that I graduated from in Brussels was at least the same. Um, so you, you, you know, you grew up with people from Taiwan and from Nigeria and mm -hmm. India and everything else. So you learn different perspectives. Um, and I think that's very pertinent to the subject today of starting a company is having that open mindedness and, and think and being aware of what's around you. But there's also an element of passion associated with what you're doing. And, and in my case, I was a I, I'll admit I was the very annoying high schooler that knew every single airplane, what type they were. I built 
no, I, I you know, I, I can, I still, I think have glue on my fingers from gluing model, model airplanes together. Uh, no, I wash my hands more than that since COVID I got rid of all that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, uh, and, uh, and then, of course, aircraft were, were, were cool, and then space is cooler, especially with the space shuttle. I remember reading a book for by Michael Collins in the late 70s about what the space shuttle was going to do and mm. stuff like that. Um, and then it was a lot of luck. Uh, but Neiman Marcus once said that you'd never underestimate the value of luck, but remember that luck only comes to people that are looking for it. And there's a lot of sayings about being prepared for luck. Yeah, um, preparation meets opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. And I fell into, I, I got a, I didn't want to go back to Iowa for summer and I got a summer job next to my college. And uh, it turns out that the guy who ran the company was a former 747 pilot for Pan Am. In fact, the chief check pilot for them. He was into aircraft. He was also the entrepreneurial, uh, he was the adjunct professor of entrepreneurial management at the local, at the university I was going to school of business. And uh, which he would come into the office. I was actually working this real estate company, which he owned. And he would come in the office and say, hey, Grant, I'm having Steve Jobs talk to my class today. How would you like to go to lunch with him? So, you know, so there was a certain amount of just pure dang luck that I was in the right wow. place at the right time. Um, and so I got the entrepreneurial bunch, bunch early because he had so much with airlines. Um, he brought me in on some of the consulting he did with airlines on equipment analysis and route analysis and load factor analysis for new startups of airlines back when deregulation happened on airlines. So, mm -hmm. so I got a little bit of that, but I was determined. I wanted to work space programs. So I actually went and worked for Lockheed Missiles and Space Company out in Sunnyvale, California when I got out of college and uh, worked defense programs for a little while, um, you know, classified stuff that I still can't tell you about without right. shooting. Um, and then, <laughs> uh, and, then um, uh, and then worked on the International Space Station. So my first claim to fame is the, the solar arrays on space station, those big blue and gold things you see in all the pictures. I was the lead designer on those back in the late 80s and early 90s. That's so cool. <laughs> but there was an element of working with a big company that I didn't like hmm. um, and trying to get them involved in more entrepreneurial stuff. And it wasn't the thing at that time, especially in the very old state um, uh, uh, aerospace community and defense and stuff. So I hooked up with some friends of mine that I'd met over the, the, the very, very nascent internet at the time. Back when the, before there were web pages, we used to have these things called listserv and you would send an email to it and it would blast the email out to the group of people that had joined the listserv. <laughs> they were called bulletin boards and there was one called SIDOT space. And I answered an email from somebody, we started talking and before I knew it, we had started a company together because we had this passion for doing the, that intersection of biology, chemistry, and aerospace engineering that you do in human spaceflight and biological spaceflight. In reality, spaceflight, human spaceflight, is a bio biological endeavor. Mm. And in fact, if you want to see somebody at NASA get a little green, especially at the Marshall Space Flight Center, tell them that NASA is really a biology organization with a little bit of, of rocket technology thrown in. But it's true that every single rocket that's been designed from the ground up to carry humans, of course, they have to accommodate humans. So you limit the acceleration, the vibration, and everything else. You have to have escape towers and all things that you didn't need when they used to blow up rockets regularly in the 1960s. Mm. You can't do that with humans. And so there, there's a... 
there's an element of designing around humans that's really cool. So that was a very long answer to your question, but that's kind of how we got here. We started in 1993, 27 years ago. There was this brand new thing called the International Space Station it was going to go up any day now. Um, it was seven years before they launched it, but but um, and and we recognized that there wasn't a, uh, this there wasn't a really good nexus of people who understood the biology and the chemistry in the aerospace and putting that together. We often joke that that's getting the people with Birkenstocks and, and uh, talking to people with pen protectors, you know, and making sure they have the same language, being a little bit of the translator between them. And so that's, that's, uh, that's kind of how we started the company uh, way back then, 27 years ago, it seems like yesterday. <clears throat> so did, were you married with family at the time when you said I'm quitting Lockheed and I'm going to go venture on my own with this dude I just met on this thing called the Internet. Yeah. And it was actually two people I met, both, and, and uh, they were a male and female. They ended up getting married a little after I met them. But um, and there was two other people we brought in. So one of the things was, again, starting with people I knew that I'd met in different walks of life. Um, no, I laughed when you when you asked that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, because I. I handed in my resignation. So what happened is I was working in Lockheed. We wanted to start this company. We bought a house in the Bay Area. So if you know what that was, even back in the 1980s, my wife and I start our starter home of 900 square feet cost us close to $250,000. Oh, so it's not like I could like just, you know, <laughs> up and quit and have no income with a mortgage like that. But my wife is very understanding. So I started the company in 93, filed as a dual employee, did everything legal with Lockheed. Lockheed says, ah, oh, we don't do life support, so you're not competing with us. So sure, you know, and uh, I often get the question, how did you have time to do that? And I just, you very just usually say, well, I don't watch TV. So that gives me a lot more time than half the people in the world. But then um, I actually handed in my resignation at Lockheed the week my first child was born. So I left work early on a Friday, watched my first child get born and like to say I helped, but I think my wife would laugh if I said that. And then, um, and then took the week off, went in that next Friday, because that's about all the time a leave you got back in those days. If you had yeah. a child, there was no paternity leave or maternity leave at the time. Well, there was maternity leave necessarily and literally handed my resignation. Mm -hmm. So that means two things. One is that my wife qualifies for sainthood. Um, and the other one is that it was a little bit of, I was willing to take the risk, but it also meant I was the, the home dad. So my wife worked for Apple computer. So she took some time off. They had a fairly generous leave for four to five months. If I remember correctly, she went back to work. I stayed home, took care of a child, ran the company as the chief operating officer out of my living room uh in in sunnyvale california well I, we were living in san jose california at the time uh and then every once in a while commuting down here to tucson because we had started the company in tucson where my other two active business partners were so there's the there's the long and involved story now i assume she knew before you quit like you were you were you were committed but Oh yeah, she she yeah. knew it. Um, she knew that you know I had tried the large corporate thing, and I will say, Lockheed taught me from some fantastic things about engineering. I mean, they were the premier, probably systems engineering firm in the world at the time. Uh, you know, Kelly Johnson, who designed the you know all the aircraft, the U two and the SR seventy one and stuff. 
he was no longer alive, but I was still working off documents that has his name on them. Wow. Uh, and you could kind of feel him looking over your shoulder as an engineer <laughs> and that, that excellence that he embodied. Um, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll give Lockheed credit. They taught me a lot about how to be a good engineer and how to run a program, a government program, in this case, NASA programs, how to deal with the day to day and, and so and all that. And I had some financial background working as a controller for the real estate company that was that, that I talked about earlier. So um, but it was a little frustrating. I had tried to start some entrepreneurial things at Lockheed, you know, given some uh, some proposals into the president and got very much the why would we do that? We make billion dollar satellites. You want to go make tens of millions of dollar satellites. And I kind of pointed out that that if you, you won't be building the next billion dollar one unless you keep up with the technology and mm. you can't afford to put a new technology on a billion dollar satellite if it's not proven. So you need something smaller to prove it. I could never quite get them to grab traction. So, no, my wife was very supportive. She she was, uh, you know, hey, you know, I, I want you to be happy and, and I don't think you're as happy as you want to be. So, sure, let's go do this. Did you guys already have clients at that time? No. Um, not really. We had developed a commercial product that we were making, that we were selling. It wasn't quite cash positive yet. Mm. Um, we had done a few proposals. Um, we had uh, worked with JPL a little bit, um, or at least some people at JPL, if maybe not in an official capacity with JPL. And uh, so, no, it was a little bit of a lick and a promise and a little bit of, you know, suck it up. And I got to admit, I, you know, my my degree is my two degrees are from Stanford. So I wasn't too worried that I'd be mm. able to find a job if everything fell apart. And right. And and uh, so so and I'll admit we we did get a little bit of financial help from her parents. Uh, I should really acknowledge that they 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 had some extra money and actually wanted to give it to us. So they gave us, you know, a little bit enough to, uh, you know, and and my wife and I are pretty frugal. We, we had some savings. It's not like we were, we were, you know, both driving BMWs or anything. Right. Like that. So how do you go about, because your clients really are, and, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming based on what you're talking about, they're, they're government clients, right? Um, not so much anymore. Of course, if you well, were yeah. talking space in the late nineties, uh, the, they were government clients. Um, so how did you but, go about getting that first client, I guess, and, and start producing that, uh, you know, that steady income stream? Well, um, NASA had some uh, some programs for building payloads. Uh, there's a company up in uh, associated with UC Boulder called BioServe, and they were um, they had a contract to build some experimental modules for NASA to fly up on the space shuttle. One of them uh, was somebody we had met in our past lives, all of us, and and frankly, one of our commercial objects that I was talking about. They were actually a small little biosphere that you could put on your desk that was fully enclosed. But the idea was the technology you could sell a, you could build a fully enclosed biological system you could sell into space. And we sent one of those to a friend of ours that got married and he said, hey, we need to fly this. And so the next thing you know, we were putting one together and putting it on the space shuttle. So we wow. started in 93, I quit Lockheed in February of 95 and our first payload went up on the space shuttle in May of 96. So Man. I can't say we weren't, I can't say we were making money then. I can tell you, I was, I never got back to what I was, to my top paycheck say at Lockheed 
it took me four and a half years at Paragon before I got paid the same as what I'd been paid when I left Lockheed. So, mm. so I figured that, that I, I sacrificed in today's dollars somewhere around a half a million dollars of income. You know, Ooh. You know I was getting paid $80,000 a year. So $4, four years of income plus inflation yeah dollars is about a half a million dollars so yeah you've done the math so you know that sounds like it was a little bit of an emotional event <laughs> no no it, it's actually the reason i know the math is because um when we get new employees uh one of the things i did uh stupidly as a because uh, i was paying off student loans and stuff uh going to stanford even then it was a lot cheaper than it is now but mm -hmm. i still had to take out loans I didn't start contributing my 401k until about three years in. And that I cost me, I, I would say my 401k now is a hundred thousand less than it would have been if I would have started that for those three years earlier. Right. So I have done the math because I, I stand up before my new employees, especially the younger ones and say, look, you need to start doing the 401k. You need to start doing this stuff. So, and I tell them what my experiences were, what I've sacrificed and what, what happens when you put things off. One of them is not putting in your 401k. The other one is if you don't have a salary for four years, but right. it's still, you shouldn't always think in, in present year dollars, you know, if it happened mm. 20 years ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> and actually, I'm a professional engineer. And one of the requirements for being a professional engineer is you have to be able to know how to do net present value. So you have to know what a, a dollar today is is worth less than a dollar three years from now. And or right. you know, they, you need to know uh, you need you need to know what you're or more than I'm sorry, more than is, you know, because of inflation and interest rates and everything else. Right. Yeah. A dollar today is worth a dollar thirty three years from now. So. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so how did you guys start making the transition uh, or I guess it's not really a transition, but uh, developing the, the new products? Like, how are you assessing a marketplace for this? Because to me, you know, you and we look at a market, um, you know, in kind of traditional terms. And, and um, when I worked at agriculture, we, you know, weather trends and the like and, and what is the price of beans? And, and we use that as our indicators. Um, in, in your business, I'm, I'm curious, what are your indicators for like what direction the market's taking? So you're ahead of it and starting to develop products for that. Well, I'll tell you that we were not traditional, you know, really, we started the company around the concept of doing this in the hope of a market that we thought was going to develop. And I will say through the years, nothing developed as fast. I joked about space station not flying as fast as everybody said it was going to. Um, but there's an element to our business that's very, very uh, profound. And that is that no matter where we go off of earth, you'll always need a life support system. Mm -hmm. So in, in with the world today, you know, there's five, six major industries, shelter, transportation, information, food, um, uh, energy, you know, there, there's those basic major building blocks of, of industry. And then everything's sort of a subset of those. The difference is when we go off of space, go off into space, uh, life support is not is no longer. Now, you, I often start off my my talks at, in uh, at, at conferences and say, okay, how many people woke up today? Back when we used to travel to conferences, right? I'd say, how many people walked out of their hotel today wondering if they had enough oxygen to make it through the day? You know, you don't, right? But when you get off space, that that's true. You got to know this. So no matter, and I'm I'm sure you always have to worry about the word always, but. 
in the foreseeable future, we will not genetically engineer humans to be able to survive in raw space without air, <laughs> with anything else, right? So it, it's a perpetual industry. So then you can argue about whether we were too early to the game or not. It, it's uh, it's kind of a joke that we're the grant, you know, you've heard of new space, right? That's yeah. the Jeff Bezos of the world and Elon Musk's. And we have whole stories on Elon Musk because he came to us with his PayPal money to do stuff. But um, you, you, uh, sorry, I lost my, lost my train of thought there. But. <laughs> we started thinking about going with Elon Musk and going to Mars. So that's, uh. yeah, yeah. That, well, and they call that new space, right? right. Uh, new space. And now there's another surge of, of space companies. We often call ourselves the grandfather of new space. You know, mm -hmm. we were there well before anybody else. It's rather interesting being 27 years into it there's probably nobody in the space industry that I haven't met at one time or another. Yeah. Um, and of course, when you start getting gray eyebrows like I have now and stuff, people start coming and asking you how to do things. So, mm. so it's fun. I, I actually do mentor some companies and mentor some other CEOs and and how to do how to do the business and especially working in the space business. So what are you guys working on now? I've perused the website a little bit, but uh, I, I, you know, give you the opportunity to talk about kind of what are your key projects and, and um, where do you see some of your products or when, you know, being implemented? Uh, I know we're all rooting for you. So, well, yeah. And your readers can always go to my website, our website, www.paragonsdc.com. So Pierre Paragon, Sierra Delta Charlie.com. Um, and we have a list. And of course there's the ones we can talk about, excuse me. And there's ones we can't talk about. And it's really funny for somebody who used to come from the classified world. It's not that we can't talk about them because they're classified. We can't talk about them because they're commercial. And, you know, frankly, what we do for NASA, such as the HLS program, human lander system. So we're on Dianetics and which now a, a, sub, a subsidiary of Lidos um, doing the life support for the next lunar lander. So right now we're on the team that's, that is competing with Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin and also with Elon and SpaceX to build the next lander that takes humans to, to the moon surface on NASA's program called Artemis. So we're, that's a big program, obviously it's, it's uh, exciting. Uh, you know, it's, it's a complex program for sure. It's, it's everything that you've ever wanted to do with life support. You have to go to the orbit of the moon. You have to go down to the moon. You have to come back. You have, you know, you have to be able to get into spacesuits, go out on the moon surface, come back and have dusty spacesuits and clean out the dust and everything else. Um, so that's one that's very cool. Um, we have another program uh, like that, that I'm not allowed to talk about at this point in time. Um, there are multiple commercial programs going on again that I can't talk about unfortunately but but you've heard of some of them in the space industry that if you go google you know who's building uh, private space stations and stuff like that you'll get the idea of some of the names we work with there um, another one though that is public is we're doing the radiator systems for the Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser which is an, a, a cargo system that it looks like a little small airplane um, we're, so what we're doing is the big radiators that then reject heat on that as it flies up and, and attaches the space station. The cool thing about that is, you know, right now there's multiple things that go to station Cygnus. Of course, we're actually launching something on Cygnus next, next month, but there's also the, the dragon, the cargo dragon, uh, then 
There's also the Crew Dragon and the the, the Boeing CST-100, which is the TTS-100, which is their human vehicle, like the Dragon 2, that's supposed to be flying soon. We do the humidity control system for that. Um, and, and all of these are in different areas. Some of them, in, the radiators are in production. Uh, we've already produced and delivered the first humidity control systems, and we'll have maybe another order on those soon. Um, but then we do, besides the word space being in our name, um, we do extreme environments. It just happens to be that space is the ultimate extreme environment. So we mm. do a lot of work, about 70% or so in space, but we also do things for the terrestrial market. One of the things when you do life support is you keep the astronauts breathing, so keeping air clean and all the pressure and everything else, you have to keep them at the right temperature too. A human is really picky about their temperature. You know, they like 72 plus or minus two degrees, and maybe you can argue with your wife or your spouse on where the where the um, uh, where the thermostat is set. But we're still pretty picky, and maybe that's because why you argue with your spouse on where the thermostat is. Um, when you can do thermal that well, people call on you to do thermal for other things that are a lot harder. Um, and so we do get into some issues of terrestrial thermal control. Um, space suits um, are not only used in space. Uh, we hold the record for the highest skydive in the world. Um, a lot of people don't realize that. The Red Bull went with Felix Baumgartner. I've watched that Water. video. That video. Well, that you don't know is that they only held that record for two years. Paragon then broke that record two years later. So they broke the record in October of 2012 at 128,000 plus feet with Felix. We came back and broke it with a, a man named Alan Eustace, who's a Google executive. And we skydived from 135,890 feet. Um, uh, How long is that free fall? Hmm? How long is that free? Almost uh, four minutes. Four, no, long. actually, four minutes and 20 seconds, I believe. You can actually, your your listeners can actually go to Netflix, download 14 Minutes from Earth. It's the name of the movie. It's a documentary. Uh, and it's about the, the um, it's about how we did that. The, Alan had hired a crew to follow us around with cameras over the space of three years while we went from literally a napkin sketch to dropping them from a balloon at 135,000 feet. That's wild. Mm -hmm. uh that that's that is wild i i i uh i was a paratrooper in the army and uh you know we, we jumped from 800 you know somewhere between 800 and 1200 feet yeah so <laughs> that, that that that's a low low out and low open uh type yeah, yeah that's when you don't want to be detected and get on the ground fast yeah. get on the ground fast yeah they designed the parachute to get you fat as fast as they as as fast as they can without killing you that was kind of their goal Right. And it obviously we're much more conservative than that, but you can see, you can think of what, what we call the Stratex program is the name of the program. You could think of it as the ultimate halo jump, which as you know, as military person, halo yep. stands for high altitude, low opening. Uh, but we didn't push the low opening. He, he opened his uh, shoot somewhere around 10,000 MSL, 10,000 uh, above uh, yeah. mean sea level, 8,000 feet above ground level. Uh, so he was under the chute for almost 12 minutes before he got yeah. to the ground or, or 10 minutes or so. And just one parachute with that. Uh, there was a backup there's okay. for sure, but yeah, it was a, it was a tandem canopy for tandem jumps, hmm. but he was only one person, but he had about altogether everything under the chute was close to 400 pounds. I was going to say, I feel like there was probably a lot of weight there and, and he's going pretty quick. 
uh, yeah. at some point. So. He hit Mach 1.24. So <laughs> he he's his... only, only the second person besides <laughs> Felix Baumgartner to voluntarily be outside of an aircraft uh, over the over the speed of sound. Yes. <laughs> was there a sonic boom when he did it? There was, as a matter of fact. And people on the ground, we actually, when we were listening to the radios and when I was in Mission Control area, uh, we heard, hey, we just heard the sonic booms. And wow. I think it, you know, it's it's you're not going horizontal, but you're coming straight down, but you're still you're still breaking a sound barrier, still have those shock waves. So it boomed off the it boomed down to the ground. Yeah. Actually, one of the engineers that worked on it wrote a paper. So I think if you Google, you know, Stratex sonic boom or something, you can see a whole paper on how that sonic boom propagates when you're going vertical as opposed to horizontal. You got a cool job, man. I'm like, this is this is neat stuff. I, you know, that uh, maybe I'm just nerding out because you know these are these are activities that I find super interesting. But um, no, I mean really I'm, cool. we're very fortunate with that. I mean, you know, and part of my attraction, of course, and 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 most of my employees' attraction, I think, is hey, I get to work on human space flight. Um, I did a TEDx talk uh, back in December of 2019. And, and the theme of the TEDx uh, session was uh, being human. Mm. And so I gave a TEDx talk on humans need to explore. And actually humans are one of the, I think the only species that can really live vicariously through other people. It's why mm. we launched the Olympics. It's why we watch any sports event. Mm. And so, you know, mm. I make the point that there were 600 million people watching Neil Armstrong take the first steps on the moon. Now, the, there's two amazing things about that. Remember, 600 million people is there was only 3.9 billion people in the world at that time. So you're and talking 12 televisions. Yeah. And only 400,000, 400 million TVs in the whole world. And there were 600 million people watching it. Now, part of it is there's no YouTube back then. So everybody, if you wanted to watch it, unless you saw the snippets on the news, you had to watch it live. So there were I mean, apocryphal pictures of people standing around storefronts with, with a TV going to watch it in groups. And, and everything else, but but there was a reason why that was happening. You know, the NASA is happy now when they get over 30, 30 million people, uh, you know, on tuning in to uh, listen to and watch the landing of a lander on Mars, mm. right? That's 30 million out of, out of you know, seven and a half billion people or whatever we are now, um, where it's easily accessed. Um, and I make the point in that TEDx talk about, about there's something about having the human element, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I do, it kind of gets some of my colleagues mad that work in the robotic space world. But I say when the first <laughs> humans land on Mars, the Viking sojourner, the, the rovers will, will hope maybe get a footnote on the, on the page of history. It's really the, the humans is what really people, people relate to and can yeah. feel the pride and the, the wonder and stuff like that. But working in that type of an industry is, is, is fortunate. And, and, uh, and we, sometimes you have to pinch yourself, you know, and you're, I remember the first time I went to a shuttle launch and I was three miles away from the shuttle we standing 12 feet from the 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 spouses and kids of the astronauts that were on the shuttle watching it take off and then yeah that feeling if you ever get a chance to see a live launch of a rocket it's you can go to all the imax theaters in the world and they do a pretty good job but it never quite gets the same thing as being there at a rocket launch that you can feel it in your chest with the shuttle, your shirt used to vibrate. Wow. Uh, it brings tears to your eyes. It's, it's a very moving event. And, and to know that you have something on that going up and <laughs> you helped make it happen. It's a feeling that's, 
it's hard to hard to describe. How long do you think before we have humans, you know, extended stays on the moon? Depends on how much you mean by extended. Um, you know, the yeah, well, I left be, that open on purpose. Yeah, right. <laughs> I so, didn't want to so, say. Uh, let's put it this way, like a permanent, like we, we've, yeah. we've permanently had a resident in the space station now for 20 years. The, they just celebrated that. The right. first increment one, as they call it, commander went up um, back in 1999 uh, or, or 2000 and something. Um, and, but since then, there's always been a human in space. Always, mm-hmm. which is kind of awe-inspiring if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first base where you're there, so there's going to always be somebody there, constant resupply. Um, I would say 2030, 2035, I would say. We could, really? Yeah. That's yeah. not far. No, it's not. And that may be accelerated a little bit. Um, you know, if the government does it, not saying the government does everything slowly, but they have to, you know, they don't know what their budget is year to year. So uh, they tend to get things stretched out, but uh, there's a few, uh, let's say resident billionaires on this planet that are wanting to do it too. So, so we'll see. The moon is unique in that, you know, it has a, a, a two week long day and a two week long night. And mm-hmm. during the day it's 200 degrees Fahrenheit. And during the night it's minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's some definite issues with staying long periods of time, uh, as we call it, surviving the lunar night. Uh, maybe a lot of your listeners won't know that all of the Apollo landings were, were, were scheduled to land right pretty much at local sunrise on the moon and then leave before the sunrise got past four days because then it really starts getting hot the moon is actually when sun has just risen is just you know five ten degrees of the horizon the the moon the local what we call the theoretical flat plate temperature sorry i have to get a little bit technical with you but if you were to take a flat plate and put it on the moon um so it could see underneath all of the regolith and can see the sun and and more importantly, see the four Kelvin deep space at, at about 10 degrees of altitude, your, that plate will come to about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's, it's room wow. temperature. So, but then as the sun goes up and becomes more direct, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And the lunar module couldn't take it getting too much hotter than it did. So that's why all of the Apollo missions have pretty long shadows and stuff because they're all playing around during uh, a various amounts of lunar morning. Interesting uh <clears throat> yeah it's 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 pretty wild how inhospitable the universe is except this one little blue speck on it and you'll need uh, a life support system if you're going to go visit it That's yeah <laughs> made that point before what, what about mars mars is uh pretty cool i actually just gave a presentation to the mars society two days ago um they want, were asking about what's going on you know what, what, what it would look like living on mars and and actually the theme was uh, I took about five random pictures of Mars colony bases and, you know, artist renderings. And I pointed out all the things that were totally false about them <laughs> that you wouldn't, this, this doesn't work on Mars or it doesn't. One of them, you see solar arrays powering your systems on Mars. Unfortunately, you have these things called snow, uh, uh, dust storms that yeah. come along sporadic- sporadically, somewhat seasonally, but still, uh, if you want a long-term presence, you just, you can't rely on them. In fact, Opie, uh, the Opportunity Rover died because of, uh, uh, of, of 
planet-wide dust storm happened, cut off all the light, the batteries died and it, and the system died on it. Mm. Um, and when you don't know, it could be two months long, you might have these things. So solar rays don't work. I'm, I'm sorry, on, on Mars for long duration. Mm. You can maybe count on them, but they've had some rovers that run with solar rays and stuff. Uh, uh, but they were, when they had a lot of dust accumulation, it was rather interesting. They thought, okay, they're going to die. And then suddenly they would wake up one day and suddenly they got a lot more electricity being done. What they found is these little dust devils would go over them and clean the dust off the solar array. So they actually had a longer life than they thought they would because this, the dust accumulation was more than they thought. And, but then it also had a cleaning thing, but still they're there. So what are you going to do? Have somebody go out and dust off the solar arrays and, mm. and you need acres Take a look at how big the solar is on space station and that generates uh usable at the at the at the plug um i used to know this is the exact number um but somewhere around 50 kilowatts power I and mean, i know that i know the gener the the solar arrays generated 186 kilowatts of power at the beginning of life i know because i designed them um but remember you're not only having to power things you have to charge the batteries for when you don't have sun right the night comes comes so you automatically pretty much cut it in half right there. So 90, and then you have losses in the system and everything else and conversion because it comes off as DC, but you need higher. So how do you data. generate electricity? Well, uh, I, in that presentation two days ago, I said, we will not settle Mars until we have a reliable medium sized nuclear, nuclear fat yeah. on Mars. Right. Um, and yeah. You know the wind power won't work because the atmosphere is so thin uh and you know you can't rely on wind either right um and so if for long-term presence and the other thing is you probably won't be on the surface uh there's hmm. a there's a problem with radiation with a thin atmosphere then and no magnetic field the Mar mars doesn't protect you from radiation like earth does with its very active magnetic field and thick atmosphere um, and you need more protection than that. And so you're either going to bury your, your living quarters and most of your working quarters, or what I think is more likely is you'll be building your, uh, your bases in lava tubes. Uh, mm. We have a pretty good evidence there's lava tubes on Mars. We know there's lava tubes on the moon. And so uh, I, I, I think our first, our first permanent settlements on either the moon or on Mars will be underground or buried mechanically, you know, by putting something down and then piling dirt on it, essentially. It, it's a really neat problem. And, uh, you know, it's one of those for me, like hearing to you, hearing you speak about these particular issues, because yeah, uh, I've watched the Martian, that's probably the extent of my uh, you know, the, the 4k video that they have out there of Mars, my kids don't find it nearly as neat as I do. Um, you know, but under, you know, I understand the, the problems with the dust and, and what I hadn't thought about is like after a dust storm, all of those are covered up. Right. So like you said, you had to clean up the panels and that's the part of the, you know, fast forwarding these problems and, and foreseeing all of this, uh, cause you don't want to find that out when you're there. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing about the experience of Mars that a lot of people don't realize is it's, it's not that light, you know, you the you know if for for your your listeners that know math uh, the the surface area of a sphere is is a function of the, the radius squared and so since mars is so much farther from from the sun than the earth is you know it has 60 percent of the light hitting it so because there's mm -hmm. less you know watts per centimeter squared hitting 
um, there's actually a boost because the atmosphere is thinner, so it's less, it, it occults less as long as there's not a dust storm going on. Um, but still, 60% of light is not really fantastic. Uh, some things don't grow that well at that type of light. So you then have to supplement with light. And then again, if you had solar rays and they go dark with the, with, and, and, and then you have a two month long dust storm, you need lights that are intense enough to raise your crops. And mm. it, it all gets mixed up. And there's a great program called CIMOC. You can go to the National Geographic uh, website and look for something called CIMOC, S-I-M-O-C. And a local researcher in Tucson put that together with um, some people and, and, and we consulted with them that you can build your own moon uh, Mars base and you know have so many square feet or square meters, of course, everything's in, in metric, right. square meters of growth space and, and so much volume of air. And you can actually try out your own little Mars base and then hit, okay, simulate and it will let you know how it will survive or not survive. Hmm. Uh, it's a great thing. It's a great educational tool. If you know anybody in the education world, um, have the, you know, the we're all in that world right now. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's called Simoc. And again, it's at the national geographic.com website. So okay. it's a lot of fun. <clears throat> so, so let me ask you, I, I used to work in uh counter weapons of mass destruction, um, intelligence work. Part of that required doing extensive research knowledge in nuclear power, um, mm -hmm. and, and going to different sites and, uh, in the U S and, you know, Idaho in particular, and going to those research facilities and you talk about you know having this medium-sized reactor um which you know i am a big fan of and and particularly with i think it's hard for us to really fathom it's kind of like when you start talking about trillions of dollars really fathom you know the speed of light squared amount of energy you know that that how we turn just a little bit of fuel into a whole lot of bit of energy. Um, and so, you know, when, when that mass starts getting dropped on you, then it's kind of like, okay, I'm just, you know, like, like a dog getting hit in the nose with a newspaper, you know, it's, what? Uh, <laughs> the numbers get so big. But one of the things that was frustrating for me is that the lack of knowledge and understanding from the government when it comes to nuclear power has resulted in a lot of regulation that I think has limited our ability to really move that technology forward. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, you know, what do you see in the future of like, what is the feasibility of that, that medium sized, you know, cause when, you know, if you're able to reduce that size of nuclear power um, and, and folks are comfortable with it, the, the applications now become really exciting too, you know, even with our own terrestrial transportation methods and, uh, I don't know. I think it's cool because you know nuclear has a lot of potential. So I'm curious about, you know, what do you see as far as getting that availability to be able to move that technology forward, the the green light? Well, I, I think it's going to get a boost, actually, because I mean, I, I don't want to cause any controversy. But if you're serious about climate change and, and battling climate change, you cannot ignore nuclear right. power. Um, you can make it cleaner to some degree. I mean, definitely nuclear waste is an issue and you've got to figure out a way to, to handle that. Yeah, reprocess um, our fuel. But, but looking at all of the ways of saving energy, unless you want to seriously cripple the economies of the world um, in order to drastically reduce CO2 emissions, I think the only 
always worried about saying only because there's always breakthroughs, but because uh, you're an engineer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause I'm an engineer. I know exactly how much a solar array can do. Yeah. I, and I know how much wind can do. I know how much hydro can do. I know how much biofuels can do um, that. I, I think if you, if you don't put nuclear energy as a possibility in the works, you are putting out the solution to excessive carbon output too far in the future for everybody's like, I would say. Um, there are tech, I, I agree that because of the some good, I mean, there are definite real things about waste and, and how toxic it is. But I think some of the other stymied research, I think we do thorium, thorium reactors. Hey, and it, it could be fusion in the end. I, I, there's uh, fusion will produce some radioactive products, but but um, it's uh, it it has some potential, and that may be it. Maybe we plunk a small fusion reactor down on Mars. It, but it's still. An, I, I noticed I said nuclear reactor. I didn't say a fission reactor. I think. Yeah. Um, but you do need that sort of energy density there and the likelihood of developing an industry to develop that capability is is really far in the future it takes a lot of industry especially you've been up to idaho and stuff it takes a lot of industry uh, manhattan project size stuff multiplied by thousands to to actually produce a, a working nuclear reactor so you're going to have to bring it from earth uh, in any foreseeable future yeah um, no, that's, that's interesting. It, it, it was always, you know, the fact that we don't reprocess our fuel and, and, and we store it and, you know, I've, I've explained to somebody, it's like paying for a hundred gallons of gas, putting one in your car and paying to store 99, mm-hmm. uh, indefinitely, you know, yeah, you're, you sound like you're much, much more up on the line. I, I will say that some of my past history had some things to do with that, but I can't. Talk yeah, to you about it, I'd have to shoot your audience up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, st- staying in the in the non classified realm. Um, right. No, that's that's super interesting. And and you know the other thing is is hearing about like just considering all of the stuff that has to go there uh, and all the things that we need to take, um, you know, put there first before we can get there, and and, and all the things that we need and. Uh, I mean, that's, that's multiple trips and, uh, it's, it's a really interesting, difficult, complicated problem. And then of course, um, as a combat veteran, I can tell you that even your best laid plans, as soon as the shooting starts, the plan is no longer, uh, you know, it's so no matter how good your plan is, um, something is going to happen that is going to throw it away, you know, as soon as uh, things kick yeah, out. What is it? No battle plan survives contact with the enemy. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I think you guys have a, it's a particularly exciting time, um, for what you guys are doing. I mean, it's always neat, uh, but just you talk about these billionaires that, that want to do it. Um, I think puts you guys in a, in a unique position and it's exciting for me and for my kids that, um, you know, my lifetime so far, we haven't, we, you know, we put a space station out there and, but as far as like, we haven't had the man landing on the moon or, you know, those sort of events um, haven't happened yet. And I see that, you know, coming and I'm looking forward to the opportunity of saying, you know, getting to watch that, along with uh, 600 million of my other best friends as well. Oh, and it'll be more than that. Uh, you know, yeah. with twice the population what it was in 1969. And, and I think um, 
while while you can have a jaded idea towards technology again that's what i mean is is you know i i often start out conferences asking okay in fact the tedx talk i did i said okay who can name the first roving uh robot that landed on the moon and what country did it come from and depending on the audience i get no answer or sometimes there is a very lovingly called nerd in the audience that that knows the answer to that and then and i usually say okay one person raised their hand out of 500 or maybe zero people and i say well the reason is is nobody cares because now you know then i ask who was the first person to land on mars to walk on the moon and what country did they come from and it's you know hands go up neil armstrong of course united states and it's funny because then i go on with my talk and so invariably at the end somebody says so wait you never answered the question what what is the robot and i said you know what i'm not really sure and i don't care and that was my point <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I actually do know but i i you know i always mispronounce the name and was from russia and stuff uh. like but uh but you know it, it it kind of makes the point really good at the end of the conference that at the end of the talk that that you know that's it you yeah. go look for it you can find it on the internet i'm sure but if you go open a history book that has a limited number of pages mm. i'm not sure it'll be mentioned <laughs> yeah ah, it's wild it's wild to think about that because those rovers have been you know kind of the most exciting thing to happen for us uh when it comes to that you know and and, and don't get me wrong i'm not taking anything away from it i mean those, those yeah. rovers do fantastic things i know yeah. many of the people on the teams that do them um they're fantastic technology feats and everything else i in no way mean to belittle no but yeah you know, i mean anybody, it's a good point. anybody's doing that it's wonderful stuff it is just that when a human does it, it's just human nature that people will pay more attention than, than, a, than I mean, I'm a space nerd, so I pay attention to the robots when they land, but yeah. the, the general public, you know, John Q public, so to speak, or they're a lot less likely to see that in the realm of their, of their need of intention when there's more pressing things around them. Yeah. <clears throat> so I guess my last question for you uh, in the last few minutes, if, uh, if somebody is you know, starting off a business in your realm um, and, you know, imagine uh, what, what advice would you give to yourself uh, 25, what'd you say, 20, 26 years ago, 27 years ago um, that, that could have made a difference um, in, in getting, getting things off the ground and, you know, being more comfortable with that ocean swim mountain climb uh, that you got to um. do. Wow, uh, boy, there, there are so many things. Um, uh, one of them is have an open mind, but be focused. Um, if I, I would say that the friends and acquaintances that I know that have started companies that haven't made it, probably the biggest mistake I've, ma I've seen them make is they have an idea, whether it's a product or an arts case a concept, and they really are passionate behind it and they get into it and they're not getting the traction but this other person offered him money to go do this thing on the side that's not quite so passionate about. And mm. so they go do that. And that keeps the lights on, keeps them fed, keeps the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know, on the table. Um, and then they get distracted by the next thing and, and they don't stay focused a lot. Um, mm. And then that works for a little while. And in rare occasions, you can build a company around it, but, but maybe not the one you wanted and, and not the one you were passionate about. So, so that was maintain a focus. Um, 
but the flexibility. Uh, you know, the, the last thing you want to do is have um, uh, have a thing going along pretty well, but drive it off the cliff because you didn't recognize that something either changed in the market or something changed in what you were doing or, or something changed in your own company that, that um, made it less profitable or whatever. You know, I've, I've seen people then just keep forging forward and not making the adjustments. Uh, mm -hmm. Running a running a company successfully is constantly looking at what isn't going right. You might be swimming in cash, you might be swimming in customers, but you look for the things that aren't working right and then try to fix them. Um, I will say I am slower to fix things than probably other entrepreneurs. Um, I, I am not an off the, the cuff type of person. Uh, I often joke that I'm a beta CEO, not an alpha CEO. Um, I, I tend to work collaboratively and, and also um, I tend to make, a, I, make, I make small adjustments earlier so that the ship sails straighter, but sometimes people wanna make abrupt, abrupt turns, mm -hmm. um, not understanding what the ocean looks like in front of them. So there, there's two little things there, but constantly looking for what's not quite going right, what's not, what you saw that where it should be going and making those adjustments quickly um, or make those adjustments deliberately, I should yeah. say, and not ignoring them. Uh, Cause you can, you can keep going down the road to use the car analogy again and you know notice that something doesn't sound right and something else doesn't sound right and the next thing you know, you're on the side of the road with a broken engine or something like that so mm. pay attention to the warning lights on your dashboard because <laughs> they have dashboards now for all your financial programs yeah that's yeah. true you know, I have the dashboard and then, and of course, for any small business, the three rules of small business is the first rule is don't run out of cash. The second one is look at rule one again. And the third one is look at rule one one more time. Right. Nothing kills a business like not being able to pay your employees. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, well, with that, I think if somebody has listened to this point and they still haven't uh, hit the like button or subscribed. It just seems kind of ridiculous to me. Like this was an awesome conversation. Grant's an amazing guy. And um, you know, you've already given us uh, about an hour of your time. So um, give that an extra second and uh, feel free to subscribe and stay tuned. Um, and thank you so much for listening in.